Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Chapter 11, The Palace of Green Porcelain, and Chapter 12, In the Darkness, from H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 11 The Palace of Green Porcelain I found the Palace of Green Porcelain when we approached it about noon, deserted and falling into ruin. Only ragged vestiges of glass remained in its windows, and great sheets of the green facing had fallen away from the corroded metallic framework. It lay very high upon a turfy down, and looking north-eastward before I entered it, I was surprised to see a large estuary, or even creek, where I judged Wandsworth and Battersea must once have been. I thought then, though I never followed up the thought of what might have happened or might be happening to the living things in the sea. The material of the palace proved on examination to be indeed porcelain, and along the face of it I saw an inscription in some unknown character. I thought, rather foolishly, that Weena might help me to interpret it, but I only learnt that the bare idea of writing had never entered her head. She always seemed to me, I fancy, more human than she was, perhaps because her affection was so human. Within the big valves of the door, which were open and broken, we found, instead of the customary hall, a long gallery lit by many side windows. At the first glance I was reminded of a museum. The tiled floor was thick with dust, and a remarkable array of miscellaneous objects was shrouded in the same grey covering. Then I perceived, standing strange and gaunt in the centre of the hall, what was clearly the lower part of a huge skeleton. I recognised by the oblique feet that it was some extinct creature 
after the fashion of the Megatherium. The skull and the upper bones lay beside it in the thick dust, and in one place where rainwater had dropped through a leak in the roof, the thing itself had been worn away. Further in the gallery was the huge skeleton barrel of a brontosaurus. My museum hypothesis was confirmed. Going towards the side, I found what appeared to be sloping shelves, and clearing away the thick dust, I found the old familiar glass case of our own time. But they must have been airtight to judge from the fair preservation of some of their contents. Clearly we stood among the ruins of some latter-day South Kensington. Here, apparently, was the paleontological section, and a very splendid array of fossils it must have been, though the inevitable process of decay that had been staved off for a time, and had, through the extinction of bacteria and fungi, lost ninety-nine hundredths of its force, was nevertheless, with extreme sureness, if with extreme slowness at work again upon all its treasures. Here and there I found traces of the little people in the shape of rare fossils, broken to pieces or threaded in strings upon reeds and the cases had in some instances been bodily removed by the Morlocks as I had judged. The place was very silent, the thick dust deadened our footsteps. Weiner, who had been rolling a sea urchin down the sloping glass of a case, presently came as I stared about me, and very quietly took my hand and stood beside me. And at first I was so much surprised by this ancient monument of an intellectual age, that I gave no thought to the possibilities it presented. Even my preoccupation about the time machine receded a little from my mind. To judge from the size of the place, this palace of green porcelain had a great deal more in it than a gallery of paleontology. Possibly historical galleries, it might be even a library. To me, at least in my present circumstances, these would be vastly more interesting than this spectacle of old-time geology in decay. Exploring, I found another short gallery running traversely to the first This appeared to be devoted to minerals, and the sight of a block of sulphur set my mind running on gunpowder. But I could find no saltpeter, indeed, no nitrate of any kind. Doubtless they had deliquesized ages ago. Yet the sulphur hung in my mind and set up a train of thinking. 
As for the rest of the contents of the gallery, though on the whole they were the best preserved of all I saw, I had little interest. I am no specialist in mineralogy, and I went on down a very ruinous aisle, running parallel to the first hall I had entered. Apparently this section had been devoted to natural history, but everything had long since passed out of recognition. A few shriveled and blackened vestiges of what had once been stuffed animals, desiccated mummies in jars that had once held spirit, a brown dust of departed plants, that was all. I was sorry for that because I should have been glad to trace the patient readjustments by which the conquest of animated nature had been attained. Then we came to a gallery of simply colossal proportions, but singularly ill-lit, the floor of it running downward at a slight angle from the end at which I entered. At intervals, white globes hung from the ceiling, many of them cracked and smashed, which suggested that originally the place was artificially lit. Here I was more in my element for rising on either side of me were the huge bulks of big machines, all greatly corroded and many broken down, but some still fairly complete. You know I have a certain weakness for mechanism, and I was inclined to linger among these the more so as for the most part they had the interest of puzzles, and I could make only the vaguest guesses at what they were for. I fancied that if I could solve their puzzles, I should find myself in possession of powers that might be of use against the Morlocks, Suddenly Weena came very close to my side, so suddenly that she startled me. Had it not been for her, I do not think I should have noticed that the floor of the gallery sloped at all. Footnote It may be, of course, that the floor did not slope but that the museum was built into the side of a hill. The end I had come in at was above ground, and was lit by rare slit-like windows. As you went down the length, the ground came up against these windows, until at last there was a pit-like area of a London house, before each, and only a narrow line of daylight at the top. I went slowly along, puzzling about the machines, and had been too intent upon them to notice the gradual diminution of the light, until Weena's increasing apprehensions drew my attention. Then I saw that the gallery ran down at last into a thick darkness. I hesitated, and then, 
as I looked round me, I saw that the dust was less abundant and its surface less even. Further away towards the dimness, it appeared to be broken by a number of small, narrow footprints. My sense of the immediate presence of Morlocks revived at that. I felt that I was wasting my time in the academic examination of machinery. I called to mind that it was already far advanced in the afternoon, and that I still had no weapon, no refuge, and no means of making a fire. And then down in the remote blackness of the gallery, I heard a peculiar pattering, and the same odd noises I had heard down the well. I took Weena's hand, then, struck with a sudden idea, I left her and turned to a machine from which projected the lever, not unlike those in a signal box. Clambering upon the stand and grasping this lever in my hand, I put all my weight upon it sideways. Suddenly, Weena, deserted in the central aisle, began to whimper. I had judged the strength of the lever pretty correctly, for it snapped after a minute's strain, and I rejoined her with a mace in my hand, more than sufficient, I judged, for a Morlock skull I might encounter, and I longed very much to kill a Morlock or so, very inhumane, you may think, to want to kill one's own descendants, but it was impossible, somehow, to feel any humanity in the things. Only my disinclination to leave Weena, and a persuasion that if I began to slake my thirst for murder, my time machine might suffer, restrained me from going straight down the gallery and killing the brutes I heard. Well, Mace in one hand and Weena in the other, I went out of the gallery and into another and still larger one, which at the first glance reminded me of a military chapel hung with tattered flags. The brown and charred rags that hung from the sides of it, I presently recognized as the decaying vestiges of books. They had long since dropped to pieces, and every semblance of print had left them. But here and there were warped boards and cracked metallic clasps that told the tale well enough. Had I been a literary man, I might, perhaps, have moralized upon the futility of all ambition. But as it was, the thing that struck me with keenest force was the enormous waste of labor to which this somber wilderness of rotting paper testified. At the time, I will confess, that I thought chiefly of the philosophical transactions and my own seventeen papers upon physical optics. Then, going up a board staircase, 
I came to what may once have been a gallery of technical chemistry, and here I had not a little hope of useful discoveries, except at one end where the roof had collapsed, this gallery was well preserved. I went eagerly to every unbroken case, and at last, in one of the really airtight cases, I found a box of matches. Very eagerly I tried them. They were perfectly good. They were not even damp. I turned to Weena. Dance, I cried to her in her own tongue, for now I had a weapon indeed against the horrible creatures we feared. And so, in that derelict museum, upon the thick soft carpeting of dust, to Weena's huge delight, I solemnly performed a kind of composite dance, whistling the land of the Leal as cheerfully as I could. In part it was a modest can-can, in part a step-dance, in part a skirt-dance, so far as my tailcoat permitted and in part original, for I am naturally inventive, as you know. Now, I still think that for this box of matches to have escaped the wear of time for immemorial years was a most strange, as for me it was a most fortunate thing. Yet, oddly enough, I found a far unlikelier substance, and that was camphor. I found it in a sealed jar that by chance, I suppose, had been really hermetically sealed. I fancied at first this was a paraffin rax and smashed the glass accordingly. But the odour of camphor was unmistakable. In the universal decay, this volatile substance has chanced to survive, perhaps through many thousands of centuries. It reminded me of sepia paintings I had once seen done from the ink of a fossil belemnite that must have perished and become fossilized millions of years ago. I was about to throw it away, but I remembered that it was inflammable and burnt with a good bright flame, was, in fact, an excellent candle, and I put it in my pocket. I found no explosives, however, nor any means of breaking down the bronze door. As yet my iron crowbar was the most helpful thing I had chanced upon, Nevertheless, I left that gallery greatly elated. I cannot tell you all the story of that long afternoon. It would require a great effort of memory to recall my explorations in all the proper order. I remember a long gallery of rusting stands of arms, and how I hesitated between my crowbar and a hatchet or a sword. I could not carry both, however, 
and my bar of iron promised best against the bronze gates. There were numbers of guns, pistols, and rifles. The most were masses of rust, but many were of some new metal, and still fairly sound. But any cartridges or powder there may have been had rotted into dust. One corner I saw was charred and shattered, perhaps, I thought, by an explosion among the specimens. In another place was a vast array of idols, Polynesian, Mexican, Grecian, Phoenician, every country on earth, I should think. And here, yielding to an irresistible impulse, I wrote my name upon the nose of a steatite monster from South America that particularly took my fancy. As the evening drew on, my interest waned. I went through gallery after gallery, dusty, silent, often ruinous, the exhibits sometimes mere heaps of rust and lignite, sometimes fresher. In one place, I suddenly found myself near the model of a tin mine, and then by the merest accident, I discovered, in an airtight case, two dynamite cartridges. I shouted, Eureka, and smashed the case with joy. Then came doubt. I hesitated. Then, selecting a little side gallery, I made my essay. I never felt such a disappointment as I did in waiting five, ten, fifteen minutes for an explosion that never came. Of course, the things were dummies, as I might have guessed from their presence. I really believe that had they not been so, I should have rushed off incontinently and blown the sphinx, bronze doors, and, as it proved, my chances of finding the time machine altogether into non-existence. It was after that, I think, that we came to a little open court within the palace. It was turfed and had three fruit trees, so we rested and refreshed ourselves. Toward sunset I began to consider our position. Night was creeping upon us, and my inaccessible hiding place had still not been found. But that troubled me very little now. I had in my possession a thing that was, perhaps, the best of all defences against the Morlocks. I had matches. I had the camphor in my pocket, too, if a blaze were needed. It seemed to me that the best thing we could do would be to pass the night in the open, protected by fire. In the morning, there was the getting of the time machine. Towards that, as yet, I had only my iron mace, but now, with my growing knowledge, I felt very differently towards those bronze doors. Up to this, I had refrained from forcing them, 
largely because of the mystery on the other side. They had never impressed me as being very strong, and I hoped to find my bar of iron not altogether inadequate for the work. Chapter 12 In the Darkness We emerged from the palace while the sun was still in part above the horizon. I was determined to reach the White Sphinx early the next morning, and ere the dusk I proposed pushing through the woods that had stopped me on the previous journey. My plan was to go as far as possible that night, and then, building a fire, to sleep in the protection of its glare. Accordingly, as we went along, I gathered any sticks or dried grass I saw, and presently had my arms full of such litter. Thus loaded, our progress was slower than I had anticipated and besides, Weena was tired, and I, also, began to suffer from sleepiness too, so that it was full night before we reached the wood. Upon the shrubby hill of its edge, Weena would have stopped, fearing the darkness before us, but a singular sense of impending calamity that should indeed have served me as a warning drove me onward. I had been without sleep for a night and two days, and I was feverish and irritable. I felt sleep coming upon me, and the Morlocks with it. While we hesitated among the black bushes behind us and dim against their blackness, I saw three crouching figures. There was scrub and long grass all about us, and I did not feel safe from their insidious approach. The forest, I calculated, was rather less than a mile across. If we could get through it to the bare hillside, there, as it seemed to me, was an altogether safer resting place. I thought that with my matches and my camphor, I could contrive to keep my path illuminated through the woods. Yet it was evident that if I was to flourish matches with my hand, I should have to abandon my firewood. So, rather reluctantly, I put it down, and then it came into my head that I would amaze our friends behind by lighting it. I was to discover the atrocious folly of this proceeding, but it came to my mind as an ingenious move for covering our retreat. I don't know if you have ever thought what a rare thing flame must be in the absence of man and in a temperate climate. The sun's heat is rarely strong enough to burn, even when it is focused by dewdrops, as is sometimes the case in more tropical districts. Lightning may blast and blacken, but it rarely gives rise to widespread fire. 
decaying vegetation may occasionally smolder with the heat of its fermentation, but this rarely results in flame. In this decadence, too, the art of fire-making had been forgotten on earth. The red tongues that went licking up my heap of wood were an altogether new and strange thing to Weena. She wanted to run to it and play with it. I believe she would have cast herself into it had I not restrained her. I caught her up, and in spite of her struggles, plunged boldly before me into the wood. For a little way the glare of my firelight lit the path. Looking back presently, I could see, through the crowded stems, that from my heap of sticks the blaze had spread to some bushes adjacent, and a curved line of fire was creeping up the grass of the hill. I laughed at that, and turned again to the dark trees before me. It was very black, and Weena clung to me convulsively, but there was still, as my eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, sufficient light for me to avoid the stems. Overhead it was simply black, except where a gap of remote blue sky shone down upon us here and there. I lit none of my matches because I had no hand free. Upon my left arm I carried my little one. In my right hand I had my iron bar. For some way I heard nothing but the crackling of twigs under my feet, the faint rustle of the breeze above, and my own breathing and the throb of the blood vessels in my ears. Then I seemed to know of a pattering behind me. I pushed on grimly. The pattering grew more distinct, and then I caught the same queer sound and voices I had heard in the underworld. There were evidently several of the Morlocks, and they were closing in upon me. Indeed, in another minute I felt a tug on my coat then something at my arm, and Weena shivered violently and became quite still. It was time for a match, but to get one I must put her down. I did so, and, as I fumbled with my pocket, a struggle began in the darkness about my knees perfectly silent on her part and with the same peculiar cooing sounds from the Morlocks. Soft little hands, too, were creeping over my coat and back, touching even my neck. Then the match scratched and fizzed. I held it flaring and saw the white back of the Morlocks in flight amid the trees. I hastily took a lump of camphor from my pocket and prepared to light it as soon as the match should wane. Then I looked at Weena. She was lying clutching my feet and quite motionless with her face to the ground. With a sudden fright, I stooped her, 
she seemed scarcely to breathe. I lit the block of camphor and flung it to the ground, and as it split and flared up and drove back the Morlocks and the shadows, I knelt down and lifted her. The wood behind seemed full of the stir and murmur of great company. She seemed to have fainted. I put her carefully upon my shoulder and rose to push on, and then there came a horrible realization. The maneuvering with my matches and wiener, I had turned myself about several times, and now I had not the faintest idea in which direction lay my path. For all I knew, I might be facing back towards the palace of green porcelain. I found myself in a cold sweat. I had to think rapidly what to do. I determined to build a fire and encampment where we were. I put Weena, still motionless, down upon a turfy bowl, and very hastily, as my first lump of camphor waned, I began collecting sticks and leaves. Here and there, out of the darkness round me, the Morlock's eyes shone like carbuckles. The camphor flickered and went out. I lit a match, and as I did so, two white forms that had been approaching Weena dashed hastily away. One was so blinded by the light that he came straight for me, and I felt his bones grind under the blow of my fist. He gave a whoop of dismay, staggering a little way, and fell. I lit another piece of camphor, and went on gathering my bonfire. Presently, I noticed how dry was some of the foliage above me, for since my arrival on the time machine, a matter of weeks, no rain had fallen. So instead of casting about among the trees for fallen twigs, I began leaping up and dragging down branches Very soon I had a choking, smoky fire of green wood and dried sticks, and could economize my camphor. Then I turned to where Weena lay beside my iron mace. I tried what I could to revive her, but she lay like one dead. I could not even satisfy myself whether or not she breathed. Now, the smoke of the fire beat over towards me, and it must have made me heavy of a sudden. Moreover, the vapour of the camphor was in the air. My fire would not need replenishing for an hour or so. I felt very weary after my exertion and sat down. The wood, too, was full of slumbrous murmur that I did not understand. I seemed just to nod and open my eyes, but all was dark and the Morlocks had their hands upon me. Flinging off their clinging fingers, I hastily felt in my pocket for the matchbox, and it had gone. 
then they gripped and closed with me again. In a moment I knew what had happened. I had slept, and my fire had gone out, and the bitterness of death came over my soul. The forest seemed full of the smell of burning wood. I was caught by the neck, by the hair, by the arms, and pulled down. It was indescribably horrible in the dark to feel all these soft creatures heaped upon me. I felt as if I was in a monstrous spider web. I was overpowered and went down. I felt little teeth nipping at my neck. I rolled over, and as I did so my hand came against my iron lever. It gave me strength. I struggled up, shaking the human rats from me, and, holding the bar short, I thrust where I judged their faces might be. I could feel the succulent giving of flesh and bone under my blows, and for a moment I was free. The strange exultation that so often seemed to accompany hard fighting came upon me. I knew that both I and Weena were lost, but I determined to make the Morlocks pay for their meat. I stood with my back to a tree, swinging the iron bar before me. The whole wood was full of the stir and cries of them. A minute passed. Their voices seemed to rise to a higher pitch of excitement, and their movements grew faster. Yet none came within reach. I stood glaring at the blackness. Then, suddenly, came hope. What if the Morlocks were afraid? And close on the heels of that came a strange thing. The darkness seemed to grow luminous. Very dimly I began to see the Morlocks about me. Three battered at my feet, and then I recognized with incredulous surprise that the others were running in an incessant stream, as it seemed, from behind me and away through the wood in front, and their backs seemed no longer white, but reddish. As I stood agape, I saw a little red spark go adrift across a gap of starlight between the branches and vanish. And at that I understood the smell of burning wood, the slumberous murmur that was growing now into a gusty roar, the red glow, and the Morlock's flight. Stepping out from behind my tree and looking back, I saw, through the black pillars of the nearer trees, the flames of the burning forest. It was my first fire coming after me. With that I looked for Weena, but she was gone. The hissing and crackling behind me, the explosive thud as each fresh tree burnt into flame, left little time for reflection. My iron bar still gripped, I followed in the Morlock's path. It was a close race. Once the flames crept forward so swiftly on my right as I ran, that I was outflanked and had to strike off to the left. But at last, 
I emerged upon a small open space, and as I did so, a Morlock came blundering toward me and passed me and went straight on into the fire. And now I was to see the most weird and horrible thing, I think, of all that I beheld in that future age. This whole space was as bright as day with the reflection of the fire. In the centre was a hillock of tumulus, surmounted by a scorched hawthorn. Beyond this was another arm of the burning forest, with yellow tongues already writhing from it, completely encircling the space with a fence of fire. Upon the hillside were some thirty or forty Morlocks, dazzled by the light and heat, and blundering hither and thither against each other in their bewilderment. At first I did not realize their blindness, and struck furiously at them with my bar in a frenzy of fear as they approached me, killing one and crippling several more. But when I had watched the gestures of one of them groping under the hawthorn against the red sky, and heard their moans, I was assured of their absolute helplessness and misery in the glare, and I struck no more of them. Yet every now and then, one would come straight towards me, setting loose a quivering horror that made me quick to elude them. At one time, the flames died down somewhat, and I feared the foul creatures would presently be able to see me. I was thinking of beginning the fight by killing some of them before this should happen, but the fire burst out again brightly, and I stayed my hand. I walked about the hill among them and avoided them, looking for some trace of Weena, but Weena was gone. At last I sat down on the summit of the hillock and watched this strange, incredible company of blind things groping to and fro, and making uncanny noises to each other as the glare of the fire beat on them. The coiling uprush of smoke streamed across the sky, and through the rare tatters of that red canopy, remote as though they belonged to another universe, shone the little stars. Two or three Morlocks came blundering into me, and I drove them off with blows of my fists, trembling as I did so. For the most part of that night I was persuaded it was a nightmare, a bit dreamed in a passionate desire to awake. I beat the ground with my hands and got up and sat down again and wandered here and there and again sat down. Then I would fall to rubbing my eyes and calling upon God to let me awake. Thrice I saw Morlocks put their heads down in a kind of agony and rush into the flames, but at last, above the subsiding red of the fire, 
above the streaming masses of black smoke and the whitening and blackening tree stumps and the diminishing numbers of these dim creatures came the white light of the day. I searched again for traces of Weena, but there were none. It was plain that they had left her poor little body in the forest. I cannot describe how it relieved me to think that it had escaped the awful fate to which it seemed destined. As I thought of that, I was almost moved to begin a massacre of the helpless abominations about me, but I contained myself. The hillock, as I have said, was a kind of island in the forest. From its summit I could now make out through a haze of smoke the palace of green porcelain, and from that I could get my bearings for the white sphinx, and so, leaving the remnant of these damned souls still going hither and thither and moaning as the day grew clearer, I tied some grass about my feet and limped on across smoking ashes and among black stems that still pulsated internally with fire towards the hiding place of the time machine. I walked slowly, for I was almost exhausted as well as lame, and I felt the intensest wretchedness for the horrible death of little Weena. It still seemed an overwhelming calamity. Now, in this old familiar room, it is more like the sorrow of a dream than an actual loss. But that morning, it left me absolutely lonely again, terribly alone. I began to think of this house of mine, of this fireside, of some of you, and with such thoughts came a longing that was pain. But, as I walked over the smoking ashes under the bright morning sun, I made a discovery. In my trouser pocket, were still some loose matches. The box must have leaked before it was lost. 